Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He is mindful that we are but dust. Bless the Lord, all you works of him, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we have so much to be grateful for. You are so kind and merciful. You not only meet our daily needs, you meet our eternal needs, the things that really matter in this life. And so as we come to your word this morning, like the psalmist who trembled at it, help us to recognize that we are reading your very words, your very breath that has been put onto paper. Help us to see how you want us to apply it to our lives today. Help us not to be just those who hear the word, but those who are willing to obey it. Give me strength, I pray. Fill me and anoint me and use me that Jesus might be lifted up, and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. I want to invite you to take God's word and turn to the prophet Ezekiel, the 38th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, if you'll just find Psalms, which is about dead center, and scan to the right, you will soon hit the prophet Ezekiel. If you are joining us for the first time, we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of a book, and before we begin the next one, God willing, I'm planning to do a 15-week series on God's prophetic schedule, and this is the second in that series. Now, I suppose the last few years have been very unusual with this pandemic, and as we've seen our nation and our world seemingly coming undone, there is a moral freefall that we are witnessing right before our eyes, and serious people often ask, well, what will be the future for my children or my grandchildren or perhaps our nation? Well, the only reliable source of answers for the future, of course, is God's Word, the Bible. Approximately one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature when it was written, and any serious student of the Bible will want to study prophecy. There was over 330 prophecies fulfilled concerning the death, burial, resurrection, and Christ's seating in heaven. Centuries before it ever happened, God wrote with unerring accuracy what would take place when the Lord came the first time. And only God, who has infinite knowledge, could gather together some 40 writers, most of whom never met one another from all kinds of professions, writing on three different continents in three different languages, and when brought together, there was one cohesive thread from Genesis to the Revelation. God said to the prophet Isaiah, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Indeed, he is. Now, people are troubled by the days we live in, The disciples were troubled on the night the Lord met with them in the upper room, knowing that he was going to leave. But he gave them a sense of assurance. In my father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions, the old English says, but a mansion today is like a big sprawling home. In the 17th century and 16th century, it just meant a room. And that's really 
how it's rendered now even in the New King James. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you because I go and prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. And so if you were here last time, we studied Christ's return for his church where he will take us where he is. A distinctly different event from the second coming when he comes back to the earth. And so what we learn from verses like this is that God is in charge. And when we study a passage like we're going to study today, we are reminded God is in charge. That when you study prophecy, there's great comfort. In fact, after Paul gave that great expose on the rapture, he concluded by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we often use prophecy to scare people. And I suppose if it gets someone into a healthy fear of God, that's a good thing. But prophecy is not only given to, quote, unquote, scare people, it's given more to prepare people, to prepare the people of God to live the kind of life that he wants us to live. Many pastors think, well, if I teach Bible prophecy, folks will just become irresponsible. Just the opposite is taught in Scripture. God's people will become very responsible. And so I mentioned there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. There's three times that number concerning his second coming. And if we expect God to fulfill the prophecies in the same way he did the first coming, then we can expect God to actually, literally, plainly fulfill each and every word. There are sadly many who take a very loose approach to God's future prophetic program. They allegorize scripture, and we'll see that throughout this series. But every single prophecy concerning the first coming was literally, plainly fulfilled. And that's how we should expect the prophecies for the second coming. So last week, we discussed the fact that God has regathered Israel, the rebirth of the nation has happened which is a prophetically required event for the second coming to happen. Not the, first, not the rapture, but the second coming. And so as we see the miracle of the rebirth of Israel, we are reminded that indeed the rapture is that much closer. In fact, when Hadrian around 135 B.C. dealt with the final revolt that the Jews had in this uprising against him, initially 70 A.D., Titus Vespucian, Then some came back and tried to once again recapture the city, and there was a revolt. And so by 135 AD, Hadrian was so upset with the Jewish people, he expelled them from the land. He renamed the nation Syria-Palestinia after their enemy, the Philistines. And so today we have the made-up terms Palestine and Palestinians. And he even changed the name of the capital, Jerusalem, to Elia Capitolonia. He hated the Jews that much. He wanted to literally obliterate them and wipe them off the face of the earth. But God predicted he would bring the people back. Now, both Moses and Jesus predicted not only would they be scattered, but God would regather them. And you might want to jot down a few of these passages I think they might be helpful, especially as you witness to people in terms of what is happening in our day. Write down this verse, Deuteronomy 4.27. Moses predicted their scattering. He wrote, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. 
Jesus, by the way, taught the exact same thing. He's on the Mount of Olives. He predicted the destruction of the temple and then the scattering of the Jewish people. Listen to Luke's account, Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so what Jesus said began in 70 AD. Why? Because the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. They were not paying attention to the warnings God had given, to the promises he had given, and so they were obliterated. After the final cleanup, again in 134, the country was renamed, and for basically 1,900 years, any map that you would pull out, Israel was not on the map. Jot down this passage, Deuteronomy 28, 64. Moses wrote, moreover, the Lord God will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Please note, this is not the Babylonian scattering. This is not the scattering by the Assyrians. This is not to a single nation, but to the nations of the world. Listen to what he wrote in Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. Moses said, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. So again, both the Old and New Testaments predict not only will they be scattered, but after they are scattered to the ends of the earth, God will bring the people back. Who would have ever dreamed that in May of 1948, they would be back in the land after 19 centuries? When they were brought back into the land, there were approximately 600,000 Jews. In fact, Isaiah 11 names some of the specific countries from which God would gather the Jews. Not only the nations in a broad sense, but some specific names. For instance, in 1948, Egypt had 66,000 Jews. Today, they have less than 200. Iraq had 150,000. Today, less than 10. Syria, 15,000. Today, less than 100. Iran, 95,000. Today, best we can tell, 9826. Yemen, 48,000. Today, under 50. Lebanon, 20,000. Today, under 100. Ethiopia, 50,000. Today, about 7,500. It's a miracle. In fact, the Ethiopian airlift, if you remember it, it took place in three stages. First, Operation Moses in 1984, and then Operation Joshua in 1985, then Operation Solomon in 1991. The Jews brought in all these aircraft and all these Ethiopian Jews. Remember, Solomon had a lineage too. So you go to Israel and you see some African people. They're as black as you, Anthony, but they're Jewish. And that's because they came through Solomon's line. And these are Jews who practice Judaism. And God miraculously brought them back. And there came a point where that nation would no longer let any of the Jews leave. The rest are basically right, right now frozen there. Jot down this text, Isaiah 43, verse 6. Isaiah 43, 6. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Listen to Ezekiel. He's the prophet we're studying today. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Listen to what he said in Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. 
And then at the time of the end, a passage we're studying today in Ezekiel 38 and verse 8, after many days you will be summoned. We'll see that verse contextually as referring to Russia and this coalition of nations that will come with Russia. They'll be summoned by God themselves to attack Israel when? In the latter years... God's going to use a hook. He's going to bring them back in the latter years, and we will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. For the enemies of Israel to come and attack Israel in the latter years, they have to be first gathered from all the nations. Indeed, they have been. The prophet Zechariah, who lives about 480 years before Christ, made this statement, the Babylonian captivity is over. And listen to what he wrote in Zechariah 10 and verse 9. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me where? In far countries. And they, with their children, will live and come back. So for the first time since 70 AD, both the Jews are in the land and the church, the body of Christ, are existing side by side simultaneously. And the fact that the Jews are back in the land is necessary, not for the catching up of the church, but for God to pull off the second coming, because there are many, many things that have to happen for the second coming, nothing for the rapture. The rapture of the church is imminent. It could happen at any moment, whereas the second coming is a prophetically driven event. But who would have ever imagined that we would see to live what preachers dreamed about, what that some spoke of a hundred years ago and were laughed and mocked at, that Israel would be back in the land, and along with that, the moral climate that God said would accompany the coming of the Son of Man. The permissiveness and violence and lawlessness of Noah's day and the perversion of Lot's day. Who would have ever imagined how God would be setting the stage for Israel to make a covenant with a one-world leader, they have to be back in the land. But now everything is in place for that covenant to potentially happen. Now, the first record of demographics since Josephus, the ancient first century historian, was on the earth was in 1880. And in 1880, about 3% or 25,000 Jews were living in the land that they then called, of course, Palestine. There were 7.8 million Jews who were alive at that time, as best we can tell, and about 3%, 25,000 were living in Israel. Hitler comes along, and he annihilates 6 million of those Jews. And God often uses the wrath of man to praise him, and so God accelerated the process of bringing the Jews back into the land. In fact, the Bible teaches that God would use even persecution to bring the Jews back. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 16, 15, I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. And then in the next verse, he said, behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterward, I will send for them many, send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. So God uses this metaphor of persecution, fishermen and hunters who will go after the Jewish people. And certainly he uses czarist pogroms and uh, economic discrimination in some nations of the world, the genocide of Hitler, the hatred of the Jews in Western Europe, and even more recently, what is happening in the Ukraine. Every day, Jews are leaving the Ukraine. I spoke to 
one of the leading pastors in the Ukraine last week, and he said, every single night we have Orthodox Jews staying in the very Bible college that you built. He is watching prophecy being fulfilled right before his eyes. God is gathering the Jewish people, and they'll spend the night there, and then they'll make the next day over to Moldavia and fly into Israel. For some Jews, they came back for economic reasons. Times were tough. Other Jews said, we need to be back in the land. The Zionist movement. The Zionists, beginning in the 1890s, were Jewish people who said, God wants us to be back in the land of Israel for Messiah's kingdom to come on the earth. And then God has to use fishermen and hunters to drag others back. We just read in Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So first God gathers the people physically, and then listen to the next two verses, Ezekiel says, then, indicating after they are gathered, then... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the second birth. Jeremiah states the same truth. So first they are physically restored in the land. Then after they are restored, God is going to renew them spiritually. And so state by state... Nation by nation, the Jews, for the most part, have come into the land of Israel in total unbelief. But there's coming a day when they will believe Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And so in the very next chapter, you have that marvelous prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, where God describes the, the bones and the flesh and all these things coming together, which is a reminder, it doesn't happen in one movement but a series of events where God regathers the people and then he breathes into them the breath of life. They are born from above. They become recipients of the new covenant. And the scripture reminds us that that's going to happen after the church has been raptured, though there is some rattling of the bones today in 1948. If two Jewish ministries are correct, they said there were three known born-again Christians in all of Israel on the day Israel became a nation. Three believers that Jesus is the Messiah. Today, there are over 30,000 Jewish believers in Israel. There are congregations all across the land of believing Jews, who, by the way, also meet with believing Arabs. And they worship Jesus as Lord. And so God is working. It's not by accident. This is prophetically significant what we are witnessing in our day. So some came through the anti-Semitism and we're seeing Europe empty out of the Jews. Why? Because they're hated more and more, especially as Muslims begin to populate those nations. So where do they go? They go back to Israel. Now, in our day, the church, sadly, is largely asleep to what is happening. A lot of pastors are afraid to preach on Bible prophecy. Some think it will make folks irresponsible. Just the opposite is taught. When you teach Bible prophecy, it makes people responsible to do what God has called them to. And so God is like assembling this giant jigsaw puzzle, and piece by piece by piece, the Lord is putting things into place. Now, we're going to discover this morning in the war of Gog and Magog, Gog being Russia, that Russia was just a tribal nation when Ezekiel writes. 
but now they are a world power. This little tribal nation could not have overtaken the Jews. Israel was far bigger and greater than this tribal nation called Rosh in our text this morning. Not to mention what we're going to study in our passage could never have happened in the latter days at the end of time unless Israel were in the land, and indeed they are. Now here's a chart that might help you to put the book of Ezekiel together. I think it's helpful to see the broad context and then we'll zoom in on the specific context. And I recognize maybe some of you are so new to the faith you've never even read the book of Ezekiel, but there are three major divisions. As I read it and reread it and reread it and read it and read it and reread it again, in the first 32 chapters, you have prophecies against Israel and the nations. Prophecies against Israel and the surrounding nations. Now, the chronology of the book is found within the book. Ezekiel is 25 years old when he's carried to Babylon, and he's 30 years of age when God calls him to be a prophet. He opens the first three chapters with his call, with his commission, as he describes this vision and this call from God Almighty. And then he begins to focus on Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. And because of their sin, God is going to discipline them. There were some covenants that God made with Israel that were unconditional in nature, others that were very conditional. If you disobey me, because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Proverbs says, I will discipline you. And though there were false prophets that were running around in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both said, no, you're going to be carried away. Now, there were three deportations And of course, Ezekiel, Daniel's carried away in the first, Ezekiel in the second, 586 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar comes down, destroys the temple, and crushes Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. And yet here's Ezekiel saying, no, it's going to happen. Forget these fellows who are saying, everything's fine, everything's going to be okay. No, God is going to judge you, and God is going to use the Babylonians as his servant in which to pull it off. So then after he moves from these prophecies against Israel, he deals with the surrounding nations, seven by name. You can read the list in those early chapters. If God's going to judge his people, he is certainly going to judge those people who are against Israel. And he writes about that. And again, it's an expression of what God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You come to the second section of the book, and we deal with the prophecies of Israel's restoration and rebirth. That's chapters 33 to 39. That's the section that we find ourselves in today. And so Ezekiel is carried away into exile, and um, he reminds the people while they're in exile that it won't be forever, that they're going to be restored. And then he looks all the way down to the corridors of time to a future day that's associated with Messiah's coming kingdom, When God will, after he scatters the people again across the earth, he will regather them and they will have a spiritual rebirth. And so most of you at least know that great chapter, Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. And again, one of the functions of the great tribulation period is to bring the Jews to faith in Christ. And we're going to see, among other things that God will use to prepare them for the preaching of the gospel, will be this battle of God and Magog. And then finally, the third section, chapters 40 through 48, where he gives prophecies of the Messiah's kingdom. And he speaks of this coming uh, millennial temple. There's going to be a temple that's bigger than you can imagine. 
The demographic, the, the, the specifics are given in, in Ezekiel, and God is going to use certain sacrifices not to propitiate him because the once and for all sacrifice has been dealt with in Christ, but as memorials to teach. We will see the children of tribulation, tribulation saints who are born during this time to recognize the significance of the cross. And so these are all very, very important truths. Now, zooming in on our chapter today, he's describing a battle that will involve Israel's remote neighbors, not those immediately bordering the country, but remote neighbors. And it will include Russia, Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now, Ezekiel will first picture this invasion by Gog and his allies, and then he will describe that after they invade the land that God is going to judge the invaders. If you want to take some notes this morning, three simple truths, I want to begin with the Russian adversary. The Russian adversary. Now, if you pay attention this morning, I think you will see that the next major event, I didn't say on God's prophetic calendar, but in the Middle East, will be this battle between uh, uh, Gog and Magog against the land of Israel. Now, we know from the context that this happens at the end of time. Why? Because he is described in 36, I'll take your heart of stone, I'll make it into a heart of flesh. And then he expands it in chapter 37 in the valley of dry bones, I'll gather them physically, and then I'll renew them spiritually. So we're in the time frame of the time of Jacob's trouble that Jeremiah refers to when God uses this period of time to bring the Jewish people to repentance. Let's start with the first two verses. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man. He does doesn't call him the son of man. That's a title unique to the Messiah, but son of man. And he does it over and over through this prophecy because God wants to underscore that this is just a man because the prophecies he preaches are so fantastic. God wants to underscore that he's just the recipient of revelation, that it doesn't come from him. Son of man, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Here's a chart underscoring three battles, as you can see. Here we go. Right now, we're in the church age. The next great event on God's calendar is the rapture. And then after the church is raptured, there's a seven-plus-year period of time. You've often heard me say seven-plus years, and someone asked me recently, why do you always say seven-plus years? Because a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation, doesn't begin until this one world leader signs a covenant with Israel. And that doesn't happen immediately. Maybe there's a period of days, maybe weeks, maybe months, possibly even years. Though I think it will happen very quickly in light of the ramifications of the rapture. But then the tribulation period will start. And uh, it's during this time frame that we have, as Steve so beautifully color-coded, the battle of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39. It could even happen before the signing of the covenant and after the rapture. We do know that there's going to be seven years. By the way, that's the length of the tribulation period in which the next chapter says they will burn their weapons of war. And then at the end of the tribulation, a second battle is called the Battle of Armageddon. Totally different battle. 
We're going to see that the battle we'll study this morning involves a handful of nations. The battle that we're going to study later on in this series, the Battle of Armageddon, involves all the nations of the world, not to be confused with the third and final battle described in Revelation 20 that metaphorically is called Gog and Magog, kind of like today we we speak, well, that's an Armageddon-like event, and people use that term all the time. Most of the time, they have no idea what they're speaking of. But God is speaking even of another battle at the end of the thousand years, quite distinct from this. And that too will involve nations across the world, not just the six or seven that we're looking at today. So after the rapture of the church, there's a period of time, seven plus years. And somewhere in that period of time, probably before the Antichrist actually signs this covenant, this battle will take place. And it would seem very logical because, as we'll see this morning, it's going to crush and ruin a lot of the Muslim countries of the world that oppose Israel. And it will certainly, with them out of the way, make it very easy for this one world leader to allow for the rebuilding of their temple that has to be in place and fully functional by the middle of the tribulation period when he goes into it and defiles it. But think about what would happen and maybe what would precipitate this battle. The church is raptured. Millions of people are missing. Nurseries across the world are suddenly empty. Can you imagine the panic that will ensue in the hearts of dads and moms? Pregnant women are suddenly non-pregnant. Surgeons who've been operating on a patient, if they're born again, they're suddenly missing. Aircraft, if they're flown by born-again pilots, suddenly crash to the ground. Cars are left without drivers. I mean, the world is in utter chaos, and that would certainly be an ideal environment for a one-world leader to step up. And so the Antichrist is going to make a treaty with Israel, and since the cleanup for this battle takes seven years, as the next chapter will underscore, seems to fit very closely in this time frame. Again, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Now, we need to pause here and ask and answer an important question. Why does the Bible use all these weird names? Well, one of the reasons is because the names of places and cities constantly change. There was once a city called Byzantium, being the capital of the world when the Emperor Constantine was in charge. And he moved the capital of Ro- the Roman Empire to, um, uh, from Rome to Byzantium, and he renamed the city uh, Constantinople. Think about the Muslims 1,500 years later. They renamed that place again, and they call it Istanbul, to which it is called today. Or think about even within the former Soviet Union, within Russia, there was once there a city by the name of Petrograd. And then many, many years later, due to the Christian influence, they renamed it St. Petersburg. And then when communism came in, they removed that name and they called it Leningrad after the communist and atheist Lenin. And then in the 1990s, they changed it back to St. Petersburg. And so the challenge is that the renaming of cities and nations has happened throughout time. However, you don't have to worry about that because what doesn't change are ancestors. So if you go back and you discover, well, what ancestors populate a particular geographical region, then you can pinpoint where you are on the map. Here's a slide that might be helpful to you. Remember, we not only go back to Noah, we go back 
to Mr. and Mrs. Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you look on the far right under Japheth, you will see a man by the name of Magog. Now, when I preached through the book of Genesis, I told you when we came to Genesis 10 that it's a chapter that most will just skip. Seems boring, but I went through every single word of it. And I told you way back then when I preached Genesis 10 in our exposition of Genesis, I think there's 60 sermons I did on that book, that you will find yourself time and time and time again coming back to Genesis 10, the table of nations. So when God looks at the peoples of the world, he doesn't simply look at geographical boundaries. He looks at ethnicities. Now, you might find that a certain ethnicity is within a particular boundary, but there might be three or four ethnicities that are described in the table of nations that fill a particular geographical spot. So you can see in dealing with Magog, we're dealing with one of Japheth's seven sons. The fact that Magog is used in the table of nations allows us to trace the movement after the flood uh, after, through Noah's descendants. Now, Ezekiel is using the table of nations as you work through his great prophecy. He knows Genesis chapter 10, and he uses these names, recognizing that his Jewish readers will recognize where these people are from and who specifically they represent. And so if you're unable to find out where these people and places were in Ezekiel's day, you can trace their modern ancestors. You go back, who are the original ancestors? And you find out where they are living today. So Josephus, he's a Jewish historian. He lives in the first century AD, not to mention Hesiod and Philo and Herodotus, all underscore that Magog were the Greeks called Scythians. Now, today, Magog would represent Russia. The Scythians live in what we call Russia, and they also represent the underbody of the former USSR, all the Stan countries, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and so on. So, son of man, set your face toward Gog, and this word translated Gog is not a person like Karl Gog or Fred Gog or Vladimir Gog or Nicholas Gog. It's a title. The Hebrew word is sometimes translated high or supreme when it's used in a non-technical way. Uh, it's a title like czar or president or pharaoh. And so in this context, Gog is a person, and he is from, notice, the land of Magog, referring to that landmass that Ezekiel is to preach against. Now, for Ezekiel, Gog is a prince, and Magog is a country, Again, don't confuse it with the Gog and Magog at Revelation 20 that we will come to later, God willing, in this series. Now, notice what he is commanded to prophesy about this particular people. And say, this is what the Lord God, notice God is in all caps, Lord Adonai, capital G, capital O, capital D. So if you're not familiar with the different names of God, you might want to read the preface to the New American Standard Bible. Sometimes you'll read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. And when you see capital G, capital O, capital D, that's Yahweh. And when God pulls two names together, he does for a reason. So he's pulling together Adonai, Yahweh. This is what Adonai, Yahweh says. Behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, notice God's not in favor of this Russian coalition. He's against them. 
Now, let me just say parenthetically, if you're using the 1995 edition of the NASB versus the 2020, it reads a little bit different. And that's because this is one of those words with a dual nuance. And we've seen this often in our study of Scripture. Our kids memorize, study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The NAS might render it, be diligent to show yourself approved. Well, what is it? Is it study or is it be diligent? It's both, but there's not a single English word that will capture the meaning. And so some translations will put emphasis on the exercise you're studying. Others will put emphasis on the kind of study you are doing, a diligent study, because you can study and not be diligent at it. And so here, the words, the chief prince, is actually translating a Hebrew word, rosh. It just is transliterated. The sounds from Hebrew come right into English, R-O-S-H. And so, uh, notice in the 95 edition of the NAS, it says, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So rosh is in view. The new New American Standard is putting emphasis on the one giving leadership. I think the older one, like other translations, do better combining both. So the Prince of Rosh, and so we're going to see that it is the Prince of Rosh that is going to lead this whole invasion. By the way, it just happens that Rosh is a variant spelling of the modern word Russia. And they even sound a little bit alike. But don't draw conclusions from that where you find another word like Meshach and someone says it sounds like Moscow, so it must be Moscow. Just happens to be that way, but it's certainly not that way, always. But we know not only linguistically, we know historically that Rosh is indeed Russia. Uh, Not only does history record it, but even the Septuagint, the Septuagint, Many of you are familiar with that term. Sometimes you're reading your New Testament, and you see this Old Testament quotation. You go out into the margin of the NAS, and it says LXX. Why do they put that there? Because that's supposed to be helpful to you. You say, well, help me, help me to make it helpful. Uh, well, because sometimes you say, okay, uh, this is from Numbers. And I go back and I read Numbers, and it says the same thing, but it reads a little bit differently. Why does it read a little bit differently? Because they put out in the margin LXX. Why? Because they're quoting the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So most Jews in the first century, they didn't read Hebrew. They read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because after the Babylonian captivity and they were spread and so forth, they lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so in the Septuagint, Rosh is definitively classified as Russia. And there's unanimous support for that, and no one really debates that today. In fact, beyond the historical and linguistic reasons, there's a geographical reason. If you drop down to verse 15, it says, you will come, this one called Rosh, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you. Now, remember, when the Bible gives directions, north, south, east, and west, it's always in reference to Israel. In Ezekiel 5.5, the prophet already made this statement. Thus says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Now, when I was a child, they would have put a map of the world on our grammar school blackboard. The United States would be in the center. 
But when God looks at the map of the world, he sees Israel as being in the center of the world. And so in scripture, directions north, south, east, and west are in reference to Israel. Now, I took the globe that we have in the counseling office, and I took a string this week, and I ran it from the North Pole to Jerusalem, and right through the center of it is Russia. And it's not by accident. It goes right through precisely Moscow, the capital of Russia. Verse 3, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, and then he adds to other nations, Meshach and Tubal. Now, Meshach is easier to identify because there are 10 times in the Old Testament, including the table of nations where they are mentioned. Again, Meshach has no association with Moscow, Moscow, neither biblically nor historically, nor in terms of its sound. It would be what we would call Southeast Turkey today. That's where the Meshachavites live in Southeast Turkey. Then he mentions Tubal. That's found eight times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And Tubal in the Table of Nations is the brother of Meshach, and he also is in the southeast portion of uh, Israel. Now, again, it's popular to come up with these bizarre interpretations, but if you do your work, it's very clear as to who these nations are. Meshach and Tubal provide the largest population base today of what we call Turkey. And of course, Turkey is a Muslim country. It's been dominated for hundreds of years by the Muslims. It was once the um, founding nation of what we call the Ottoman Empire. And if you know your modern day history, the current president of Turkey wants to reinvigorate the Ottoman Empire. Let's keep reading. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince or leader of Russia, Meshach, and Tubal. So I'm speaking here of a Russian adversary. And who is their adversary? God himself. Because this leader, Gog, who's leading Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, is against Israel. God will indeed be against Gog himself. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, this leader named Gog, he is going to lead this coalition in this incredible event. Look at verse 4. Let's go there for a second. He's already said, preach against them. And now he's going to clarify how this battle is going to happen because of God's disposition against Gog because he hates Israel. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in splendor, a vast assembly, all of them with bucklers and shields, wielding swords. Now, notice how verse 4 begins. It says, I will turn you around. And the Hebrew word for I will turn you around is shuab. In fact, it is often used in reference to sin in the Old Testament when God speaks of repentance, of the Jewish people turning from their sins. In fact, even today, an observant Jew will describe someone who is non-observant who didn't follow the kosher laws and so forth, who becomes observant, they will say they're doing subah. It's a form of this word. That is, they are repenting. Now, in this context, the repenting, the turning around is not religious in nature, but it is in terms of the direction of their coming from the north. Why? Because God's going to put a hook, and God's going to bring them down. 
Now, what will be the hook? The Scripture doesn't say. Now, I can speculate. If I were to guess, it might be. Well, we certainly know part of it is the wealth of Israel, but the specific hook might be the natural gas that they have. Of course, under our last president, since Israel now has the largest natural gas reserves in the world, bigger than America, under our last president, he said, you shouldn't be buying your natural gas from Russia. You need to buy it from Israel. And of course, it was half the price. But they didn't choose to do that. And of course, this past week, two of those nations were dropped from Russia. They cut off their gas. And it may be that Russia will want to go after these natural gas supplies. But there will be some kind of hook, some kind of motivation that God will use. Now remember, we're going to see in a moment, Russia will make its own choice based on its own evil motives. But God is over it all. Why? Because as Proverbs 21.1 says... The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. Just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the scripture underscores in Exodus, was made to follow Israel, to go after them. Why? Because God was going to bring judgment on that Pharaoh and all his army and have them literally drowned in the Red Sea. So on the one hand, this is a willful decision that Gog is going to make, that we're going to see their motivation in verses 12 and 13. But on the other hand, God is over it all. God is in charge. Let's read verse 4 again. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen. And all of them clothed in splendor, a vast assembly, all of them with bucklers and shields, wielding swords. Now, notice the description of this invading army. They'll have horses and horsemen. They'll have bucklers and shields, wielding swords. And so it's often asked, should this be understood literally of this army? Or should this be understood figuratively of this army? And technically, I suppose the text could allow for a figurative interpretation and that at least for part of it, he separates all your army from the cavalry. And in Ezekiel's day, the cavalry would be considered the strong part of any military force. However, I think it's probably best to take it literally. You say they're going to come with swords and shields and horses? Yeah. Why would you take it literally? Well, first of all, as a general principle... In Scripture, especially as it refers to prophecy, you should only take it symbolically if when you read it, its meaning is absolutely absurd. But if taken literally and it's clarified, then you should take it literally. Now, what do we know is going to happen during this time frame? Well, both Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation, if you were here for in our series, describes these incredible events that are happening in the heavens above. It may be via solar flare or whatever that all the electronic equipment in the world will literally be shut down. Now, we won't know for for sure until, of course, it happens. But there are many figures of speech. And again, when something is a figure of speech, you should take it because if to read it literally and it's absurd, then you shouldn't interpret it that way. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life or I am the door, he didn't mean he was a loaf of bread or he was a physical door. And so when there are typically similes involved, God will use words like this or as this, but he doesn't use that kind of language. 
Well, some would say, well, he's using Ezekiel's language because how could he describe missiles and tanks and assault rifles and MiG-29s and the like? Well, let me just say here while we're here, God doesn't need anyone's help. And if God literally fulfills this, it will be all the more great that he saw down into the future exactly what was going to happen and the consequences. In either case, what is clear, and no one can debate, is that great Russian bear is going to have a face-off with the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I can tell you who's going to win. All right, let's read verse 5. Verses 5 and 6 complete the allies that will attack Israel with their leader Gog, Persia, Cush and put with them, all of them with buckler and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togama from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Now we know who Persia is. We know it's modern day Iran. In fact, it was called Persia until March of 1935, where Persia was renamed Iran. And so interestingly, Iran was once one of Israel's greatest allies. When preachers preached in Israel in the 1970s, and they said, well, Iran, I know, is your friend, but someday they're going to be your enemy. People said, not Iran. They're like, we're buds, man. We work together. They're, they're helping us. And then it happens. Now, if you ask any Israeli, who is your number one worst enemy? They'll say the Iranians. And then they wanted to say, well, what else does this Bible say? And they started asking Christian preachers who were coming to Israel. So here's the map so far. We have Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And if you know your history at all, here are three nations who once hated each other, but now they cooperate with each other, and someday together will attack Israel. Now, next here in verse 5, we have Cush. Now, Cush appears three times in the, the table of nations for Ham's descendants. We know Cush is a transliteration of the Hebrew, which encompasses both Ethiopia and Sudan. If you're using the 1901 American Standard Version or the 2020 New American Standard Version, it simply renders it differently. And I, I like Cush because technically he's describing from the table of nations what we would call Ethiopian people. And Ethiopian people not only live in the boundaries of Ethiopia, but they also live in Sudan. And so one translation of the NAS said, well, we're just going to call them Ethiopians because that's who they are. And then in the new translation of the NAS, they went back to Cush, like the 1901 translation of the American Standard Version that became the new American Standard in the 1950s because it is in reference to Ethiopians wherever they may be. So again, he continues in verse 5. It ends with the words, uh, excuse me, put. We definitely know who put is. No one debates that. That's modern-day Libya. And again, they're one of uh, Russia's strongest allies uh, in the Arab world. Verse 5 speaks of all of them with buckler and helmet. Again, underscoring that these are well-outfitted armies. Included in the war notice is Gomer. And Josephus identifies the people of Gomer, the Gomerites, as those living in Galatia, which is the western part of Turkey. Now, again, remember, when we think of countries, we think of geographical boundaries. When God thinks of the nations of the world, he thinks of ethnicities. And so in modern-day Turkey, you have the Gomorites as well. And then he mentions here Beth Togomar, Togarma, Beth Togarma. It's a mouthful. And that would be in the north of modern Turkey. So here's a map where we've been so far. Look at the map. 
You've got the former Soviet Union, largely Russia and all the stand nations. You have Iran. You have Turkey. You have Libya. And you have this region that would encompass both Sudan and Ethiopia. And these are the nations that are going to go under the leadership of Gog, this Russian leader, whoever he is. These are the nations that are going to attack Israel. Now, between the table of nations, ancient literature, the Septuagint, it's easy to identify these nations. There's not any debate on it. And I could have spent an hour just on that, but I don't want to bore you. Look at verse 7. It's like God taunts these nations. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. In other words, God is telling Gog and his allies that they had better make preparations because when they attack Israel, they're attacking God Almighty. Now, the first time I worked through Ezekiel, I thought, Lord, how would I ever teach and preach the book of Ezekiel? And certainly when you come to a passage like Ezekiel 37, it doesn't make for a barn-burning sermon as sometimes people refer to it. But I've been commanded to teach the whole counsel of Scripture, And certainly, there are those who will just hype you up on spiritual sugar, but there's also spiritual broccoli. You need both, so pay attention. This is good for you this morning, all right? So beyond the Russian adversary with her allies, notice the second aspect of this war, starting in verse 8. I want to underscore the Russian attack, the Russian attack, beginning now, if you will, in verse 8. After many days... You will be summoned in the latter years. You will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which, have been a continu- which had been a continual waste. But its peoples were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. This is an incredible verse. We learn after many days, you being these nations... You will be summoned. Why? Because God's behind the whole operation. He's going to put a hook in Gog, and Gog's going to come down with her allies. I will bring you out. And the scripture says, after many days. And when you see that phrase, after many days, it's defined in its context. Sometimes it could be a few months, or sometimes it could be hundreds of years in many Old Testament illustrations. Well, God defines it in this context because if you look at verse 16, it says in the latter years, or in this verse, in the latter years, and in verse 16, in the last days. So when God says here after many days, he's speaking about the latter years and the last days, two Old Testament terms repeatedly used to describe that time frame before the second coming of Messiah when he rules and reigns on the earth. In verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about when? In the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. And so this is important. Now notice he describes that this is going to happen when the land is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which was a continual waste. Think about that. That's what happened. God regathered the Jewish people across the planet. He gave them victory on May the 14th, 1948, when they declared their independence. They went the next day into an impossible war where they had hundreds of thousands of soldiers against them. They were outnumbered 100 to 1, but God allowed Israel to have the victory. 
and he has allowed them to retain that victory in a land that was basically a continual waste is now blooming and blossoming in one of the richest nations in the world. And further, they are described as living securely. So we learn from verse 8 that these enemies led by Russia will come into the land of Israel that has been restored from all the nations and they are living securely. Now notice it does not say they're living peacefully. It says they're living securely. They won't live peacefully until the prince of peace comes back and rules from Jerusalem itself. But they're living security. In other, securely. In other words, they're not afraid that they're going to be kicked out. And all this has happened since 1948. If you read the United Nations order of the nations of the world in terms of military strength, Israel's ranked eighth in the world. Other lists put them as third on the list. Out of all the nations in the world, Israel, a small group of people, there's now nearly 8 billion people on the planet, 12 and a half million Jews, some would say 15 million. I think that's an exaggeration. I think what the Orthodox people say is correct, 12 and a half million, because there's a lot of people who want to come to Israel, claim to be Jewish, who are really not Jewish. Lay that aside. Small piece of property, small, minuscule group of people, and they have the eighth strongest military in the world. In fact, many of our own American weapons are field-tested in Israel. And then they come back and they say, well, you should make these changes to the F-35 or do this with this. Why? Because they're using it in actual battle. They are the eighth strongest, at least the United Nations says, and so they are living securely. They're not living under the threat that they're going to be thrown out of the land. Now, notice further um, in verse 9, You will go up. He's speaking here about Gog. God commands Gog. He's giving a command. You, Gog, will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. This is incredible. Just think your way through this. They're going to come, the scripture says, like a storm. And a storm can come, especially in Israel, Israel, violently, unexpectedly. Suddenly, just no notice. And notice they will be like a cloud covering the land. That means they will be massive in number. You, which I underlined all the way through the verse in my Bible, is a reference to Gog. And Gog will come with all of his troops as described further in this chapter. Gog won't be coming alone. He'll come with all your troops and your many peoples to invade the land of Israel. Now, what is their motivation? What are the Russians thinking? We know what God is planning, but what are the Russian people thinking? Because again, Gog is the one giving this leadership. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So first we learn that even though the general idea to attack Israel is under God's sovereign plan, we just read that back in verse 4, the evil specifics come with thoughts that are in the mind of Gog. Now there's an atheistic nation. Even its current president, he plays Christianity, 
He's obviously not a born-again Christian. He's been bombing and obliterating every Ukrainian Orthodox church, the only churches that have been left untouched. And these cities that have been destroyed are the Russian Orthodox. Why? Because they work for him. In fact, most of the KGB agents during the former Cold War were all Russian Orthodox priests. In either case, God is going to underscore the evil specifics. Look, look further, starting in verse 11. And you will say, I will go up. Remember, up and down is in reference to altitude, not north and south. And they're going to go up to Jerusalem. I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go up against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. So secondly, he describes these unwalled villages, meaning they will not build walls around their villages and towns as they did in every ancient town in Israel. Only the old city of Jerusalem has a wall around it, and that's for historical slash tourist slash archaeological reasons. And while there are a few inner walls to deal with the people within the land, there's no outer walls. Why? Because they're living securely. And the word for securely means with a sense of confidence. And indeed, they have a sense of confidence. All of them living without walls and having no bars, they have a sense of security. And it's in this context that this leader known as Gog is going to lead these other nations. Now, we often say, follow the money, and you'll find the source of the issue. Look at here, verse 12. Why are they coming? To capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Simply said, they are coming first to capture spoil. Literally, the Hebrew says, to spoil spoil. And there's a difference. We've been witnessing the Russian troops spoil spoil. It's one of their methodologies. If you've studied Russian military tactics, as many Marines have, one of their techniques is to go in and just to obliterate a place. They wipe out civilian targets, hospitals, kindergartens, every building that they can. They spoil, spoil to demoralize the people, but also to seize plunder. They're going to steal Israel's wealth. Now, verse 12 describes what Israel has accomplished in the last 70 years. Israel's economy, it's estimated, is 100 times stronger than the Russian economy. A small group of people, one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth. And this leader of Russia is going to go down, and he is going to try to steal from them. When they went into the land, it was a wasteland. It looked just meanless. And they took a a piece of land that was just destroyed, and they turned it around and had become one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And notice how they're described as the center of being the center of the earth. The word for center is the word navel. Just like your navel is the center of your body, God describes Israel as being the center of the world. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan, they are the ethnicities that live in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And the merchants of Tarshish, you'll remember that from our study of Jonah, that's modern-day Spain, with all of its villages will say to you, these are not involved in the invasion. They're on the sidelines, and they're looking and examining the motives, just like the nations of the world today. Why are you attacking Ukraine? Have you come to capture spoils? 
Have you assembled your contingent to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to capture great spoils? People are asking the same questions today. Now, the last truth, and I want to underscore in your thinking, beyond the Russian adversary, who's God himself, and beyond the Russian aggression uh, with this nation, Gog, with its allies, there's the Russian annihilation. The Russian annihilation. Let's pick it up now, if you will, in verse 14. Stay with me. This is important. Therefore, prophesy, son of man. And say to Gog, this is what the Lord God says, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding horses, a large assembly, and a mighty army, and you will come up against my people, underscore that, my people, you will up, come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. You know, we say, well, this is God's country. This is God's land. There's only one nation in the world in which God can say that, and that's Israel. He calls them my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes, Gog. So God says that he himself will bring Russia against Israel. I will bring you against my land. By the way, that has never happened in recorded history, ever. Russia, out of the remote parts of the earth, has never, ever come into my land, Israel, to attack my people, the Jews. And what they are going to do is going to be a colossal blunder. Because to attack my land and my people is to attack God himself, and they will pay a price. Verse 17. By the way, God is going to use this as a testimony that the nations may know. Remember, it's during this time frame. Not only are the Jews, because of the nature of this battle, as we'll see it in a second, because God is supernaturally going to give victory, not through the Israeli defense forces, but by God's own hand. The nations are going to step back. And remember, it's during this seven-year tribulation where the greatest revival in all of human history is going to take place, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are seen as converted. Now, there will be huge numbers of people who will follow the Antichrist. But a multitude like the sands of the seashore, John says that no one can count will be converted. Verse 17, this is what the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, says. Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. The message is, is that God's patience will have expired and the dam of his mercy will break to his eternal wrath. Verse 19, in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will certainly be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. There's going to be a God-appointed great earthquake that will be so severe that Gog and his allies won't even know what hit them. Verse 20, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals of the field, and the crawling things that crawl on the earth, and all mankind who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence, and the mountains will be thrown down, the steep pathway will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. 
This earthquake is going to cause such a great disturbance that the sea, the sky, the field, even the crawling insects, all mankind will collapse as every wall falls to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him, Gog, on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. These armies are going to be so discombobulated, they're going to start killing each other, as we've witnessed in other Old Testament victories. With plague, verse 22, and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and brimstone. This earthquake will no doubt activate volcanoes that will change the temperatures in the skies that will cause these uh, hailstones to come down and it will rain fire and brimstone. So, verse 23, I will prove myself holy and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. God and his, Gog and his allies will realize that to fight against Israel is to fight against the God of Israel. It's very similar to what God says about Pharaoh. Listen to what Paul recorded, quoting the Old Testament in Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up. Why? In order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So you read the Old Testament. Oh, we heard about your God. The one who drowned all of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. (laughs) they're going to hear about God on this day. And God will be shown holy and mighty. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. It's profitable. So what does God want us to learn from this section of Scripture? Let me give you three applications as we close our time. Number one, first, I think we should take from this portion of Scripture, we should be awake to God's plan. You know, there are two extremes with Bible prophecy. Some run ahead of God and set dates and make all kinds of stupid predictions that are not in the Bible. Others go to the opposite extreme with blinders over their eyes, and they can't see what's happening, and they can't see right in our day that we are nearing the return of the Lord. Remember, when he wrote this prophecy of Scripture, Russia was a small tribal people. The Zionist movement doesn't begin until the 1890s. The Jews had been scattered across the world as Ezekiel had prophesied would happen. The Iranians were best, Iranians were best friends with Israel. But look what's happened. God's brought the Jews back. Here's a photo that should stir your thinking. Even 25 years ago, Russia, Turkey, and Iran were enemies. And here is a picture of President Rouhani of Iran, President Erdogan of Turkey and Putin and Russia shaking hands. They have an alliance together. And what do they have in common? They all hate Israel. God has gathered the people back in the land. The evil one is gathering his allies to go against Israel. Listen, for this battle to happen at the end of time, first God would have to regather and reconstitute Israel as a nation. Then he would have to prosper them and make them wealthy because there's a greed motivation to come and attack them. Then he has to have them living securely in the land. And then he has to make enemies allies. And God has all done that. Now, let me say parenthetically, I am not saying that Vladimir Putin is Gog. And don't leave here and say, well, Pastor Carl said Vladimir Putin is Gog. Now, one Christian leader came out of retirement this week and said that. That was stupid. 
And he also made stupid prophecies in decades past that did not come true. And again, the faith was discredited. I mean, what happens if Vladimir Putin is assassinated? What happens if he dies from the cancer he has? Then they'll go and say, oh, you stupid evangelicals, you're always making these predictions. Now, his predecessor, the guy who's in second slot, is a whole lot worse than he is. Could be him. We don't know. You won't know until after the church is raptured. And if you do find out, you'll wish you hadn't found out because it would only mean that you were left behind and you missed the rapture. But we do know that while we cannot say he is Gog, he is certainly Gogite. He is an evil dictator who invades nations, his neighbors. He builds alliances with other nations to go against peoples. So, number one, we should be awake to God's plan. Number two, we should be thankful for God's faithfulness. When the Lord Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he told them just before his ascension that he was going to send the Holy Spirit and they were to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he had promised. Now, in the Old Testament, a magnificent work of the Holy Spirit is also associated with the Messiah's kingdom, the future millennial kingdom. And so the disciples naturally ask, it's an intelligent question showing they know their Bibles, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it would have been a perfect time for Jesus to correct them. No, 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 no. There's no more kingdom for Israel. The church is the new Israel. He just says, number one, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't want them to be consumed with prophecy that they missed the mission. But you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the earth. That's what you need to concern yourself with. Men of Israel, why do you stand, look, gazing into the sky? You've got a mission to do, man. We have a mission to do, and there are many Christians today who are enraptured with prophecy, and they can't remember the last time they tried to take someone through the plan of salvation. Their priorities are out of whack. Then the Catholic Church comes around, And of course, Augustine plants the seeds for this doctrine that the church is the new Israel. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church adopts it. And they say, well, the Roman Catholic Church is the new Israel. We are now the people of the living God. And then you have Protestant reformers who are saved out of that. And they just put a different spin on it. And they take the same doctrine. They say, God's done with Israel. It's embarrassing to read what Calvin said, what Luther said, what Augustine said about the Jewish people. Now, wonder the Jewish people are so defensive against some Christians. Oh, we're the new Israel. And so we have all these people today in our churches who don't know which end is up, and they see absolutely nothing happening with Israel where it's right in front of you. And they came to that conclusion, especially when for 1,900 years, nothing seemingly happened. But remember, God said he would do it at the end of time. We didn't know when that end would be. Has God abandoned Israel? Certainly he has not. This is what the Lord says, he who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and so its waves, Yahweh of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares Yahweh, then the descendants of Israel will also cease to be a nation before me forever. That is what the Lord says. 
if the nation before me, excuse me, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the descendants of Israel for everything that they have done, declares the Lord. When Dwight L. Moody preached in the 1870s that I'm paraphrasing now. I read the quote in the first service that when the Jews came the first time, they had no room for, when Jesus came the first time, they had no room for Jesus in Bethlehem. But when he comes again, they will welcome him with open arms. And he quotes what Jesus said. They will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, Messiah will not come back to Israel until the Jews are converted where they're able to say, blessed is he, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, and then the Jewish people will be a witness to the world. Moody was laughed at and mocked for saying that. Now, Moody was probably the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, apart from maybe Dr. Billy Graham. And he was mocked and laughed at. But what did he do? He believed what God plainly said. Paul asks in Romans 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Far from it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In Romans 11, 11, he asked the second time. I asked them, they did not stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? Meganoita, absolutely not. No way. God knew all about the unfaithfulness of Israel. And sadly today, people confuse the conditional promises of God with the unconditional promises. Certainly there are conditional promises that God made to Israel. You obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, you'll come under discipline. But then there's unconditional promises where God is going to be faithful no matter what the Jews do. You say, but so many Jews in Israel are living in rank unbelief. That's true. Like the majority of Americans. But a day is coming where it's all going to change. Third and finally, we should be ready for Christ's return. This world may seem like it's falling apart, but our sovereign God is actually bringing it all together. And there ought to be a sense of expectation, a sense of holy living in light of what we are seeing lived out right before our own eyes. I mean, if God can, if God can say to Gog and his allies, you better prepare, <laughs> what could he say to his own people? We ought to prepare we ought to be reaching out. We ought to be sharing Jesus Christ. We ought to be doing everything in our human power with the help of the Holy Spirit to win men and women and boys and girls into the kingdom. And some of you, though, listening to my voice, you have no assurance that heaven is really your home. You hope maybe you'll go there, but you don't know. You can settle it today. If you will admit that your sin is wrong and it needs to be forgiven and changed, if you will put your faith where God put your sin on Christ, the one whom he raised from the dead, proving his sinlessness, the only one who could pay for your sin, he will save you in a moment's time. But you must humble yourself and submit to Jesus as Lord. Now, our Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture that we've studied on this Lord's Day, a challenging, difficult portion Help us as your people to pay close attention to what you've recorded here. Help us not to miss how you are putting the pieces together for the return of your son from heaven. We are reminded that your catching up of your people will happen first. Help us not to be blind that the hour clock is running low, that we need to be living holy 
and speaking of the best news that men can ever hear. Help us to do it this week in Jesus' name. Amen.